Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, my name is Gareth Evans, I'm your host today and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this very special RSA Thursday lunchtime conversation. I'm joined today by Sarah Ichioka and Michael Paulin, two tremendous systems change thinkers whose multidisciplinary approach to space and place is outlined in their new book, Flourish. Now, before I get any further, I'd like to remind you that the Twitter hashtag for today's event is RSA Flourish. Please do go right on there uh, or into the YouTube chat to start a conversation about what we're talking about today. We're also very pleased that after the event, Michael will be on Twitter uh, to answer any questions you might have as well. So there's a great opportunity to engage further. But before we do that, let me briefly introduce Sarah and Michael. Sarah leads Desire Lines, a strategic consultancy for environmental, cultural and social impact initiatives and organisation. And prior to that was the director of the Architecture Foundation and co-director of the London Festival of Architecture. She's been recognised as World Cities Summit Young Leader, one of the Global Public Interest Design 100, a British Council Claude Duffield Cultural Leadership International Fellow, and she's also an honorary fellow of the Royal Institute of British Architects. Michael is the founder of the Innovative Architectural Practice Exploration and lectures internationally on regenerative design and the circular economy. He's one of only a handful of architects to have had a TED talk, which has since had almost 2 million views. And in, in his previous book, Biomimicry and Architecture, he explores a key theme of his ongoing concerns and it's one of the publisher's best-selling titles. Now, Flourish, which we're talking about today, is a real game changer, it seems to me, in how we think about ecological impacts on design and the larger built environment. And of course, the reverse, most importantly, it's a dialogue between what humans do and what the uh, natural world impacts on the human uh, uh, order of things, shall we say. That uh, synchronicity of exchange is where we're looking to find, of course, a much greater balance in the future. And Sarah and Michael have some incredible ideas about how to realize that much more generative um, and sustainable possibility. Uh, we're delighted, of course, they will be presenting their ideas to us now, and I will be in conversation with them afterwards. So wherever you are, please do welcome Sarah and Michael. Over to you both. Thank you, Gareth, for that incredibly generous introduction. And uh, Michael and I would like to thank the RSA for this wonderful invitation uh, to speak today. Are we on track to avoid collapse? This is a question that many of us are asking ourselves with increasing urgency and anxiety. Michael's and my sense as experienced practitioners in the built environment is that we are not on track, not even close. The October 2018 report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was the defining moment for us because we've both been working in sustainability related projects for most of our careers and it became unfortunately clear that 30 years of conventional sustainability had not got us anywhere near to where we need to be. And feeling exasperated by this situation, after the IPCC report came out, I reread one of my favorite essays. It's called Leverage Points by Donella Meadows. She was a brilliant systems thinker. And in this essay, she describes how, because systems are complex, it's not always obvious where to intervene to bring about the change you want. She describes 12 leverage points in order of effectiveness and argues that very often people try to bring about change using the less effective leverage points. The most influential leverage points are at the level of the mindset or paradigm that drives how the system works. It's worth saying at this point what we mean by a paradigm or mindset, and we're using it to refer to a widely held idea story or way of looking at things that determines a lot of human behavior. In, mo in most cases, when we describe a shift between paradigms, these shifts do not involve a, a vault fast or a complete abandonment of the existing way of thinking, but rather an evolution towards a more holistic perspective that opens new possibilities. Sarah and I met for one of our regular idea ideas sharing sessions in late 2018 and found that we were in a very similar place. The more we looked at the situation, the more convinced we became that the whole paradigm of sustainability needed to shift towards regenerative design and development. Sustainability, unfortunately, has been rather debased, and it's all too often it has involved simply mitigating negatives. It has also tended to be very mechanistic and only focused on human needs. And as such, we urgently need to go beyond this 
to find ways to design that achieve net positive impacts and that are based on a more comprehensive and systemic understanding. The word regenerative has been used to describe forms of agriculture for some time. And when we started writing this book around three years ago, it was starting to be used more frequently, but there wasn't much clarity about what it meant. Our own ambitious definition of regenerative design and development is that which supports the flourishing of all life for all time. But how are these changes ever going to happen? We assert that the way to bring about transformation is actually quite simple. First, we must recognize that change is necessary. And we're reckoning that if you're listening to this event, it's likely you've already completed that first step. Second, we identify, debunk, and reject the degenerative mindsets or paradigms that are harming us and other life on Earth. In complement to Meadows' identification of the paradigm and the power to transcend paradigms that Michael's mentioned as the most effective points to intervene, other thinkers such as Jeremy Lent or Yuval Noah Harari have written how our cognitive frames shape our behavior and culture. In turn, cognitive neuroscience has shown that the best way to dislodge a story is not to argue against it, but to shape a different, more persuasive story. So that means that step three is that we need to imagine, develop, celebrate, and embrace the new or recovered mindsets that care for life, all life, at the very center of everything we do. We articulate five of these regenerative mindsets in Flourish. Step four, we need to maximize our own personal agency, finding new purpose for our work and life and taking positive action to realize these mindsets. And then finally, we join together with others in diverse coalitions to build regenerative communities and systems that benefit the majority of life on Earth, not just a tiny minority of one species. Our first paradigm shift we describe is about agency, our capacity to effect change. And we deliberately put this first because we believe that a transformation in our ideas of agency is critical to everything that follows in the book. We credit the concept to the late Hans Rosling, who asserted that you should be neither an optimist nor a pessimist, because both of those imply inevitability about the future, and you either feel positive or negative about it. Rather than seeing the future as something that happens to you, as, a, as possibilists, what we need to do is to decide on the future we want and then set about creating it. So in this chapter, we explore what a possibilist mindset involves, and we conclude that there are actually three key characteristics. Firstly, agency expansion. Secondly, evidence-based action. And thirdly, managing uncertainty. Now, we have noticed that there is a tendency to minimize agency. We hear things along the lines of, well, I'm only an architect, so there's not much I can do without a really good client, or even leaders of large organizations claiming that they are beholden to their shareholders. And when we minimize our agency, it tacitly gives others permission to do the same. So how do we change this? Well, in the book, we look at research from social sciences about various forms of cognitive biases and studies such as the three degrees of separation theory, which shows that if we maximize our agency, we encourage others, even those at three degrees of separation, to do the same. We describe some inspiring examples of evidence-based action, such as the economist Esther Duflo, whose MIT Poverty Action Lab transformed the field of overseas development, going on to win the Nobel Prize. We also look at Sir David Mackay's work on sustainable energy and Jan Gale's work on urban planning. And we explore new methodologies, such as Bill Sharp's Three Horizons model, and work on reflexive futures, which help reinforce the idea that we can shape the future rather than see it as inevitable. For every paradigm shift in the book, we give examples of how to bring about the change we describe. We also identify and counter likely criticisms. The second mindset shift we advocate for is a rethinking of the dualistic view, which sees humans as separate from the rest of the living world. Instead, moving towards a new holistic paradigm in which humans co-evolve as an integrated part of nature. A recurring theme in our book is distinguishing existing worldviews or stories that are problematic and instead proposing new ones. 
The writer Jeremy Lent has argued that the metaphors we hold greatly influence how we behave. If, if we carry on with what Lent calls a conquest of nature metaphor, then we're heading in a very dangerous direction. What we need to do instead is see ourselves as part of a web of life. Another one of our key sources for this paradigm is the philosopher Freya Matthews, who makes the case for a deeper philosophy of biomimicry. Matthews refers to an argument that the architect Bill McDonough has put forward, which is if you're a manufacturer of a hair gel, you should think about the river that it will end up in and ask yourself, what does the river want from this hair gel? Matthews asserts that we need to go further and instead ask ourselves, what does nature want us to want? Thinking about architectural and urban projects through this living systems frame is a radical departure from mainstream practice and opens a host of thrilling possibilities. Of course, seeing humans as holistically integrated within a larger web of life is integral to indigenous wisdom traditions the world over. And relearning these traditions and their accompanying practices of stewardship will be key to building a regenerative future. The third chapter is titled A Longer Now, Deep Cyclical Time and Holarchic Progress. And in this, we explore and think about how we need to change our ideas towards time. So just think for a moment about the assertion that time is money. It's been repeated so often that many would regard it as a self-evident truth, but it's important to remember that it is just a story and could be replaced with a more convincing one. It takes someone as persuasive as Karma Chitim, head of the Bhutan Gross National Happiness Commission, to assert, to assert a different story. Time is life. Consider now the likely difference between two countries or companies that are guided by these stories. If time is money, it would seem rational to, for someone in a position of power to commodify and control people as resources in order to accumulate profit. If on the other hand, time is life, people would be more likely to view exploitative working practices as unjust, and those in power may feel more inclined to respect people's need for self-fulfillment. It's possible that a more life-centric perspective might encourage those working in the built environment to demand a deeper purpose to the work that they are asked to do. And in this chapter, we look at the importance of deep time and cyclical time to help us reestablish a more meaningful connection with the rest of the living world. A key source is the philosopher Roman Krasnarek, who makes an eloquent case for long-term thinking in his book, The Good Ancestor. And we propose how those ideas might be extended with further examples from the built environment. We assert that what we need to do now is to view historic history critically, to rethink prevailing ideas about time and progress, and to collaborate with greater commitment and urgency than ever before. The name of our fourth paradigm, which is a mouthful, symbiogenesis, is our tribute to the scientist and science communicator, Lynn Margulis, who revolutionized evolutionary biology by postulating that many organisms have evolved through processes of mutual benefit and cooperation, rather than the tired survival of the fittest metaphor that is too long shaped political and social thinking. Recent scientific research has started to dismantle the idea that humans are savage and selfish and actually shows that we're notable in our capacity for altruism and cooperation, as indeed are some of our animal relations as well. What's more, the writer Margaret Heffernan, another key reference for this chapter, has composed a strong case that competition is often harmful to individuals and organizations. We're also inspired in our thinking about this paradigm by the environmental philosopher Glenn Albrecht, whose conception of the symbiocene is a new era that we should strive towards to replace the Anthropocene. Moving away from dominant norms of competition, this paradigm is also inspired by learning from the symbiotic practices of traditional cultures, including the Southern African concept of Ubuntu, which roughly translates as I am because you are. We combine and extend this thinking to suggest what this could mean for the way we design and inhabit the built environment. This can take many forms from eco-villages in Los Angeles through to the co-creation of urban policies in South Korea. Symbiogenesis invites a shift of the designer's role from a consumer critic to one of citizen activist, 
and a reorientation of the way we allocate resources within our cities and nations from private luxury and public austerity to, in the words of George Monbiot, one of private sufficiency and public luxury. The final paradigm shift involves rethinking the idea of endless growth. We explore much of the recent writing about economics, and we suggest that neither growth nor degrowth nor a steady state are useful purposes. We argue that a much better purpose for our economies would be the maximization of planetary health. This term, planetary health, refers to an initiative from the Lancet magazine and the Rockefeller Foundation. The idea being that human health is inseparable from the health of our broader life support system. We conclude that the form of economics best aligned with the purpose of planetary health is Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. We expand on what this means for buildings and cities and make the case for a radical rethinking of the materials we use and the way we steward them. Le learning from ecosystem models to take circular economy ideas much further. And we are conscious that one of the, the prevalent uh, critiques at the moment is about what the cost would be of this kind of transformation. And there appears to be a growing consensus that it would require about 1.5% of global GDP, global GDP to address the planetary emergency. Now, this amounts to about $1.5 to $2 trillion per year, which may sound like a colossal amount of money, but it is a fraction of the $50 trillion invested in pension funds globally, and it would represent about 15% of the net wealth of the world's current billionaires. And we assert that the obstacles to a regenerative future are not technological or financial, they are social and political. And in conclusion, we acknowledge that taken together, all of these shifts may look daunting, you know, amounting to a, a transformation of human consciousness. And we realize that some may find it naive or even hypocritical to be so ambitious. The chief flaw of the hypocrisy critique is its implication that unless someone is perfect, they don't have a right to suggest how things could improve. It's hard to imagine any government or company operating this way, and it's absurd to expect such flawlessness from ourselves as individuals. As Rebecca Solnit has written, perfection is a stick with which to beat the possible. So we have strived to show with examples and by countering potential criticisms, how we can begin to implement all of these changes. We're not suggesting that the five paradigms in this book encompass the full range of transformations that will be required to bring about a fully regenerative future. And the RSA has done some great work on stimulating this debate with this regenerative futures program. So we have to accept that our dominant societies cannot reduce emissions and the destruction of life at the rate needed to avert collapse without dramatically transforming nearly everything about how we plan, construct, and inhabit our buildings and cities. This means that from urban planners, architects, and engineers, to clients and contractors, those of us working in the built environment have an essential role to play in the transition from a pathway of collapse towards a flourishing ecological civilization. And indeed, because we all inhabit and use the built environment, everyone has a stake in this conversation. So we must work together to bring about a tipping point so that what may seem impossible today rapidly becomes the obvious way in which things should be done. How do each of us find our place in this work? We're inspired by a number of ways of thinking about this question. First, the Climate Action Venn Diagram that was created by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, which asks each of us to think clearly about what are we good at, what do we enjoy doing, and what needs to be done. We can also think about expanding our agency, as Michael described in the first paradigm, to think about how we can extend our in positive influence in concentric circles of influence, extending out from the individual to our immediate friends and family, to broader organizations and groups that we may be involved in. But most importantly, we need to remember that our strength is in numbers. Individual agency alone is insufficient. We need to come together in coalition um, with many others who share our commitment to transformative change. And because we need a robustly diverse ethnosphere, which is Wade Davis's term, in the same way that we need a diverse biosphere for health, 
we urgently need to bring other voices and actors into this work. And it's something that Michael and I have tried to do actively within our book and also in the podcast that accompanies it. Finally, let's do this with a sense of excitement. If the transformations that we have described in our talk still feel daunting, then consider the prize that's on offer. In our cities, we could create conditions for all of us to mutually flourish, to live in cohesive communities with clean air, healthy food, and a public luxury of shared facilities. We could even be the first generation to witness the great return of flora and fauna to our landscapes, the return of salmon runs to our rivers, and the rewilding of our human spirit. Instead of accelerating extinctions, our silent spring could be replaced by a raucous summer, again, using the words of George Monbiot. We could see shifting baseline syndrome move in the opposite direction as we increasingly inhabit our role as co-enablers of the flourishing of li all life for all time. Michael and I assert that working towards this transformation is what it means to be truly creative, to be truly contemporary today. Sarah, Michael, thank you both very much indeed. I mean, it's a remarkable and visionary proposal that you make both in your presentation just now, but of course also in the book. And I'm really struck um, just hearing you both speak now that actually the built environment itself, you know, our buildings and cities, as you say, um, actually came up very little. You're much more concerned uh, in establishing, it seems to me, at least in this presentation, I know, of course, the book, takes it much more directly into, into the, uh, the world we made. But you're very um, keen, and rightly so, I believe, to establish a philosophical framework for the change that you then propose. And you're equally collaborative and generous in acknowledging all the influences and tributaries that have led into developing your own thinking. Which leads me in a way to my first question about language. You have suggested some new um, ways of thinking uh, linguistically about the shifts that we need. But language, of course, is one of the great problems we face, isn't it? Because as soon as an idea is verbalised, it, it creates a kind of um, force around itself that can be challenged, of course, can be abused. We have heard in many other spheres about how the words like freedom and democracy have been hollowed out to, to mean very little now. What is your sense, really, at the very beginning of this process? You've written a book, of course, about the role that language can play and how these terms that you both suggested can enter ideally, um, sooner rather than later, the larger lexicon of discussion around these issues. Maybe I could go first and then Sarah can chip in. Yeah, absolutely spot on, Gareth, and that, that is something that's very important to us, and, and that's certainly building on the work of, of George Lakoff and others who, who've argued that actually metaphors and stories are hugely important in our lives um, and the language that goes with them, uh, not, not just in shaping the way we think, but it, it, even shaping the sort of perceived reality. And um, we do talk quite a bit about terms like, you know, the difference between sustainable and regenerative and, and how the term sustainable, however, well-intentioned it might have been at the beginning, how it gradually became sort of debased to the point where it was even used to refer to sustainable profits, which essentially means business as usual. Business as usual. And we're, we're kind of cautiously optimistic that the term regenerative will prove more um, resilient than that, because it, it, it is increasingly used in the sense of having a net positive impact. So whereas it was possible to refer to anything that was slightly better than standard as, as sustainable, it's, it's much more difficult to do that with regenerative, you know, getting to a, a point of being above that line of neutrality, getting to a point of having a positive impact, that, that is already quite a high bar. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, following on from that, Sarah, I'm very struck, uh, as you mentioned, about the idea that the larger um, temporal and spatial implications of, of the regenerative, um, which you very eloquently described. And, and in, in the book, we see a wonderful example of what that looks like actually in practice in Seoul in South Korea, the removal at the centre of the city of, of a you know a huge multi-lane highway and its replacement, re, re, uncovering of a, an existing water source and, and its replacement with an extraordinary urban garden that shows you know in very clear uh, action what 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 your ideas would look like in practice the, the great challenge of course which we're all aware of and 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 nobody more than both of you is is how competing agencies and interests uh, will come together to realize what is clearly mutually beneficial for everyone in the long run now you know 
I'm going to ask you again a little bit later about how these these wonderful ideas might be realized in practice. But Sarah, what is your sense of what the negotiating proposal would be to bring multiple and often contradictory and competing agencies together to turn the regenerative into an actually existing undertaking? It's a great question. I think it actually relates back to how I some of the thoughts that were coming up for me for me in response to your first question, which is one of the importances of changing uh, for for us in actively focusing on language is just surfacing that invisible thing we all often use words we use metaphors we don't think we don't really think through what their real world implications are but once you start to think about them it completely changes the way you see everything so right now you just said what are the competing interests in a city and we're very much we're very often taught to think in that way you know someone who works in a transport agency thinks like oh gosh i've just got to deliver my key performance indicators you know i can't think about what the housing agency might want you know they're my competitor so uh, or similarly you know at different constituencies uh, different political constituencies in any urban context so i think already just reframing that to not have our baseline assumption that that, that that commonly used phrase, right, that we reach for competing interests mm -hmm. um, to just think about interests and then maybe see if there may be points of alignment between them, um, which actually, you know, a, a recently published work by people like Heather McGee shows that there's, you know, what she calls a solidarity dividend um, when it comes to, in, in her context, um, looking at American infrastructure projects. But that there can, if we begin to think about uh, repeating phrases which relate to mindsets like competing interests mm -hmm. with phrases like McGee's, the solidarity dividend, actually you get a completely different way of when you approach a conversation um, with stakeholders around a table. And I would really love it if in any given, uh, you know, at the initial phase of any um, project that those coming into it could come with this 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 um, approach that's not a not one based on the mindset of survival of the fittest, nature red in tooth and claw, but instead, you know, based on a Margulis type view, which has then been substantiated by so much subsequent science about um, the powers of mutualism. Tremendous answer and, and brilliant that you you um, caught me caught me up on my on my own competing interest phrase. I mean that was a really great example of, of regenerative response in action. I think clearly you, I'm. You took it well, Gareth. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean I knew it was there. It was always there, waiting to be discovered. Um, no, tremendous. Thank you so much, Sarah, for embodying the regenerative in your response. Now, Michael, following on from that, I mentioned the the South Korea example. Uh, you know, in, in Seoul, the capital. What sort of scale are we looking at for where these um, potential positive uh, tipping points might occur? You know, we've, there's obviously a lot of talk about cities being the driving force of social change, you know, because governmental action can be so slow and you can actually manage something on a mayoral level, you know, in a contained environment. Where are we seeing potentially um, productive and successful scale shifts and what kind of scale should we really be thinking of, you know, in a, in a, in a believable and, and achievable way? Yeah, that's another great question. And um, uh, one of the most inspiring bits of advice I, I heard was from Kate Rayworth, who, who never knocks on closed doors. And she just goes to where the energy is. So she, you know, she looks for where change is starting to happen. And uh, yes, you're right, cities are definitely where there's quite a lot happening. And uh, we refer to various writers you've talked about how um, urban mayors seem to be doing far more than national leaders. And there seems to be a, a much healthier kind of camaraderie between city leaders than, than national leaders. I, I think there's also a potential for a huge amount to happen at um, sort of senior level within companies, rethinking the, the deep purpose of a company. And I've also been really impressed to see how the legal profession has, has really stepped up and, and got really uh, thoroughly involved in driving change through legal mechanisms and really quite bold changes. You know, I'm thinking about ideas such as the law of ecocide, uh, which only a few years ago people were re regarding as, as something that's kind of just too too far outside the window of acceptability the overture window and uh you know now that there are 
more and more countries seriously discussing it. A number of countries have implemented a law of ecocide, and it, increasingly uh, countries in mm. um, uh, Europe are, are talking about doing the same. Thank you very much. I mean, Sarah, again, just, you know, in a kind of a relay of ideas and exchanges that we're having here. Um, Michael, talking about companies, of course, um, many of which have, you know, larger uh, economies than, than nations, and of course, span the world in, in a way that nation states don't necessarily do. Brings us to the question, not only of place where something unfolds and where ideas might change, but also of time, because there are, and again, borrow the word I used earlier, competing temporal interests, shall we say, not least the urgency that we all face with the planetary emergency. How do you think that time can be can be factored in as, 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 as you said in your presentation, time is life, not money, but also time is as the need and necessity and ability to change. There, there are not competing, but parallel and converging timeframes within this. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Thanks for that, Gareth. I, I'm really heartened that this seems to be an area that's really, um, really captured people's imagination, you know, both in the intelligentsia, but also the broader public. Um, this idea of rethinking time, you know, projects like the Long Time Project, um, which is just absolutely fantastic, right? And how the, the long time movement is moving from encouraging us to rethink our mindsets to actual really practical applications of how to do so. Um, and I, uh, I think I'm really inspired by toolkits like their, um, their generational layers uh, activities that I know that many people are now using to begin meetings. Um, when we spoke with Roman Krasnarich for our podcast, he, um, he mentioned how introducing this human layers project that encourage us to think about our own actions in the now and how those relate both backwards and to people who uh, came before us and how they relate forward um, to younger people we may have a connection with now. And that in Krasnarich's telling, that completely reframes the way that all of the stakeholders, the competing interests, um, interact in, um, in the subsequent meeting. So I think that I think that actually actively integrating tools like those put forward by the long time project is a very good way um, to begin to think very practically about these layers. I would also say quickly that I am, um, as mentioned in the introduction, I think that Michael and I are very keen to emphasize that there's so much in, in the culture of architecture and design, there's so much um, obsession with innovation and innovation is, of course, important, but I think there is so much exciting learning for all of us to do from the past, too. And, and, and I think that's an area that also is, is uh, going to be a source of amazing energy um, in building a regenerative culture. Thank you, Irvish. I'd like to come, come back to you in a minute about that relationship between, you know, traditional knowledge, should we say, and, and innovation. But Michael, taking forward what Sarah's just raised about uh, the idea of, of the kind of the arenas of conversation that need to happen, um, the various forums that are possible um, for negotiation between these various interest levels and agencies. Um, could you give us a, an example or two, if they come to mind, of, 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 of meeting spaces, of assemblies, whether at the governmental, civil, NGO level, um, that that you would draw on as as exemplary of how dialogues can really move forward to productive outcomes. Yeah, sure. So um, Matthew Taylor, uh, the uh, uh, former uh, um, CEO of the, the RSA, I've heard him talk um, and express his concerns about um, the declining faith in in democracy at a national level. Mm. Uh, and I agree that is worrying, but it's, it's also been um, quite heartening to see the increase in the um, interest in the levels of participatory democracy, citizens' assemblies, and so on. And I think those are um, essential to, to shaping um, a positive future. Um, and I think um, you know, connecting into the, the previous question, there, there's also um, an important time dimension to this. So, so we talk about certain qualitative aspects of time, uh, particularly picking up on the, the work of the, the wonderfully lyrical writer Jay Griffiths. Mm -hmm. So the you know the Greeks, the ancient Greeks differentiated between chronological time, chronos, and opportune time, kairos. Mm -hmm. And um, this might sound like a sort of uh, fine distinction, but but actually it is important to understand that different types of time exist. And and what's meant by opportune time, kairos, is is 
being aware that there are particular moments in a process or in the design of say a new bit of city when it's much easier to bring about change than others. And I'm thinking particularly in the very early stages of a project, you know, when you get a, ideally a, a really diverse team together to brainstorm ideas and there's a, a really energizing feel as though you know, every, anything is possible. And that's the moment at which you can introduce ideas of long-term thinking, of um, uh, planetary, uh, living within planetary limits, all sorts of important regenerative ideas. The, the problem is that very often that part of the process is, is just kind of brutally compressed. You know, very often the way buildings are designed is that a developer will say to an architect, well, there's no fee at the moment. We want you to come up with a scheme that we can show to planners um, because at the moment we don't know if it's viable. And so that just does not allow for any richness of dialogue. And once the scheme has been approved by the planners, it's very difficult to change it. And we, we really need to do better you know, as an industry and as a society because those decisions are shaping future lives for the next 50 to 100 years and, and longer. Could I say one thing in uh, building on, on the question about forums uh, for these sorts of conversations. You know, we, we write about cities around the world that are convening uh, these sort of regenerative conversations or the beginning, the beginning of these regenerative conversations. Gareth, you mentioned the example from Seoul. Seoul, you know, within, within lived memory under a national dictatorship, but has since become this amazing example of a very progressive, inclusive uh, metropolitan government. They have had these ongoing you know, multi-layered, multi-temporal consultations around the future of the city. And um, similarly, we also talk about urban innovation labs from anywhere from Sao Paulo to Helsinki that I think give, uh, offer great potential to have those sorts of generative conversations that Michael has just described. Tremendous, thank you, Sarah, for coming in on that. And also let's stay with you on, on this idea that you mentioned earlier, which again relates directly to conversation, to exchange of ideas and also to time with the, with the, you know, the productive relationship between ancestral knowledge and, and innovation. Now, clearly that's obviously a relationship across time, but it's embodied often in, in uh, lived memory and, and ideas passed down that have then been discarded and need to be recovered. Um, do you see a kind of, a, 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 is there a process by which this, this tension can be productively realised? Because we see it, of course, in very different ways in different cultures, communities and, and countries, um, how ancestral understanding is respected or not, you know, and, and how obviously innovation is seized on often as a way of discarding previously useful knowledge. Are there structures that you've kind of come across or, or ways of thinking and delivering in the process of writing the book that you think are useful to us to think about? I think that it's really important in this conversation to be led by Indigenous thinkers, practitioners, um, scholars, and I'm so happy that our ethnosphere, to use that Davis term again, is finally evolving to the point that we are, you know, that sort of mainstream platforms are belat very belatedly beginning to give the right, <laughs> you know, give, give uh, much more focus to, um, to, these, to these scholars, these innovators, and these practitioners from indigenous lineages. Um, so, you know, we've been really inspired as I think many in the regenerative community have by uh, the work of people like Tyson Yucca-Porta or um, the work of uh, the amazing scientist um, Robin Wolf-Kimmerer. Wolf mm. Exactly. Um, and many, many, many more. Um, you can think of Bruce, Bruce Pascoe talking about um, custodialist practices of the Aboriginal uh, peoples of Australia. It goes on and on. So I think in that way, perhaps, I mean, just, just acknowledging that you know, none of the three of us in this conversation ha you know, have direct Indigenous lineages that I know of, that I'd say it's probably, um, I would defer to those scholars, those thinkers. And um, I, I just know that Michael and I have been really grateful for, for those who've already shared um, shared their, you know, th their work in this field in the various books that we reference. If I could add one more thing to that. So one of the really important questions that we articulate the, in the book is that when, when uh, an architect or an engineer or an urban planner or designer is approaching a, a new 
location, a, a really key question that they should ask is what solutions already exist in this place? And that means that, you know, the, the full history of accumulated human ingenuity, as well as, as the 3.8 billion years of evolved biological ingenuity. And, you know, ideally, we, we should not view those as, as dualistically separate at all, but um, as, as something that is a kind of common body of ideas perfectly adapted to that place that we can draw from. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. Now we're, we're moving sadly towards the close of, of this lunchtime conversation. But before we do that, of course, you know, we do need to, to remind ourselves that, you know, the world that uh, we've heard described by yourselves in the last half hour or so, you know, an extraordinary visionary world of, of possibility for everyone is, is not coming collectively to us anytime immediately um, following this conversation. And we're also profoundly aware, of course, of the, the, the ravages of the pandemic and the ongoing ravages of the planetary emergency. How do we make the proposal uh, you know, against the urgent needs of the present. I mean, just the, the you know, in many, many people's lives, the, the fact of survival itself, even though everyone's interest is best served by a regenerative uh, worldview that you have proposed. How, how do you make that sheerly time-based, day-to-day immediate case against just the needs of survival, both, you know, for us, you know, in hierarchies of society here, but also, of course, internationally? Um, I, either of you would welcome both your thoughts, actually. Uh, absolutely. It's important to acknowledge that the, the economic ravages of and health ravages of the pandemic have been completely unevenly distributed. Um, and, you know, those 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 uh, frontline needs are very important. But what I what I find so inspiring about Kate Rayworth's donut thinking is that she shows that it's not, you know, yes, we absolutely need to fundamentally address that inner circle of raising everyone um, globally within uh, to, to meet their basic human needs. That's an absolute human right. But that can that that's in no way should in no way be seen as competitive with, you know, bringing our other human cultures um, with back within the safe limits of planetary boundaries. I think, you know, I'm all I was raised with the um, live simply so that others may simply live. And I think that if we adopt that sort of global donut perspective, the two are not actually uh, uh, conflicting. And another thing I love about the top, the, the planetary health frame that Michael described is that there are a lot of ways that planetary health and human health are integrated. So again, you can have things that are, to use that horrible phrase, win-win, you know, that, that modifications to our cities that lower uh, climate impacts and also improve public health and may not be as expensive as building massive infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in many ways, actually, there are congruent interests in meeting <laughs> conflict rather um, congruent rather than conflicting interests. Michael, do you have any further thoughts you wanted to add on that? Well, it's reminded me of a, a, an expression from Amory Lovins. I'm a big fan of Amory Lovins. And you know, he, he he has a good example of, of how it doesn't necessarily have to be more expensive to do all this stuff. And, and he describes water to a civ an average civil engineer. Water is just cubic meters of nuisance to be taken somewhere else as quickly as possible in large concrete pipes. And actually, if you, if you take a regenerative approach to managing water in a, in a built environment, you can deliver massive benefits in terms of people's well-being psychologically and physically. And, and that's exactly what was done in, in the South Korea example of, of Cheongi Echeon, uh, the river restoration. Thank you both very much indeed. Now, it's, it's extremely helpful that uh, towards the end of the book, you have a, you know, a, a, a two column page, a kind of manifesto, if you like, the book distilled into a single page of ideas, um, where we have, you know, the, the established reality of things and, and, and the flourishing proposal that that should be, it seems to me, a two poster on subway networks across the world, it should be um, virally transmitted across all the platforms we know, and so on. Um, but but that is really you know it's once you read that it's very clear what what you're proposing and it's a distillation of, of a much wider body of view, body of knowledge that you've shared with us this afternoon but also thinking through your own practice do you see right now if I asked you each for a couple of of immediate um, 
uh, points of leverage, positive tipping points as opposed to negatively ecological tipping points, positive tipping points that you could bring to our audience right now um, that you might or might not be directly engaged in, um, where we can see these ideas transmitted into a reality that we can that we can share and perhaps be part of. Absolutely, the fifteen-minute city, um, I think, is is a an a concept that's taking off everywhere. It seems I hear it talked about here in Asia. Europe talked about in North America and Europe, um, and it originates in South America. So I think it's a global concept um, that is about relocalizing our communities in a with a really pos in positive way. It involves active mobility. It involves relocalizing our economies, um, and really interrelates the, the planetary health and the human health aspects that I was thinking about. Um, and I think that it, it seems to have picked up interest across political boundaries as well, which is something that always gives one hope in these polarized times. Thank you and very much, Sarah. Thank you, Michael, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I could add to that. So um, with that that table summarizing the uh, the sort of transformations that we're, we're talking about, we, we discuss tipping points and the need for a tipping point because actually nearly all the solutions we need and by solutions, I don't mean just technological solutions, I mean sort of cultural transformation solutions. All of those new mindsets exist in, in pretty well articulated form. And we, we need a tipping point to, to get to that. And uh, there's a, an anecdote uh, from uh, the late Polly Higgins, um, where she talks about the experience of, of going to Berlin um, about three months before the Berlin Wall came down and, and talking to the family she was staying with and, and the dad saying, well, no, that, that, never, that wall's never come, come down, not in my lifetime. And then it did come down and she revisited um, about a year later. And, and the dad said, well, of course, it was always going to come down. And, and she realized that, you know, that was the tipping point. You know, he didn't realize that change was coming. But the key point is that there were already lots of people there right on the front line who realized that change was about to happen and they helped make it happen. And in many ways, I think we are at a similar point. You know, when you see a, a newspaper as established and as um, kind of financially oriented as, as the Financial Times, uh, publishing a whole series of articles calling into question the, the basis of, of conventional capitalism, that is surely a sign that uh, things are about to change. And another thing that is happening that I think is, is very hopeful is, is civil society organizations joining up to demand change at, at a really big level, you know, at, at um, assistance change level. Um, and that, that's still in the early stages, but we're at a point where two thirds of the local authorities in the UK have declared a climate emergency. And there are many other groups like architects declare, business declares emergency, culture declares emergency. And you know, it may well be that to, to really push this through will require massive uh, public protests. And um, you know, if the, if the film Don't Look Up is um, <laughs> to be uh, taken seriously, and I, I thought it was a brilliant film, and I can, I can completely see why um, the media reacted against it, because you know, they were the ones that came in for the most criticism. But um, you know, we, we need more people to speak courageously in the media and, and ask demanding questions of politicians, such as, do you, you know, do you really think that endless growth is possible on a finite planet at a time when we've extinguished two thirds of the, the non-human animal biomass in the last 50 years? This is an emergency and it needs to be taken seriously. What is your answer? I think that I think there's a very important role for many of us playing that, you know, doing that sort of advocacy, um, the storytelling role. I also think that there are many others can play a complementary role in working at a grassroots level to make change in their area. And that those two things can work in a wonderful complementary way. We, um, in the book, we write about the growth of mutual aid activities in societies around the world. And you know, those, those, those concepts have their roots a hundred years back or more, but there's been, during the pandemic, there's been an absolute flourishing of them. It's, again, I think it's a global phenomenon um, that I would imagine will continue on beyond the pandemic whenever it happens, but will be very valuable in building a resilient regenerative culture in the face of these human created crises that we've um, that we've created. Also tools like sociocracy um, taking off. Uh, I think that it's, it's this a combination of that sort of political level agitation for change, um, but also making the path by walking it um, as so many um, 
so kind of bringing what are seen as alternative practices increasingly to become that tipping point mainstream um, that we need. Tremendous. Thank you both so much indeed. Well, as you said earlier, it's an exciting proposal. This is not something we should be scared of. You know, the the the, the rewards, the promise of the vision you lay out is, is one of great excitement and possibility and opportunity in the best and most humane ways. Let's remind ourselves of the wonderful book we've been thinking about today, Flourish, published by the excellent Triarchy Press. Please do find it in all the ways you know how, of course. Please do circulate this conversation uh, in a similar manner. Um, let's really think about the vision that uh, Sarah and Michael have offered us here. This is a vision that doesn't just oppose, it actually proposes. It understands that, that uh, arguing against something can only take you so far. You have to argue for something. By doing that, of course, you become in a fully humane way invested in the proposal that you're making rather than just finding a way to oppose the one that you don't like. It can operate at multiple scales simultaneously. It can operate in your own life and any uh, part of the community that you feel your own contribution will have an impact. We must all play a part, of course, um, as Sarah and Michael say, and while they both come from the built environment in the widest possible uh, definition of that word, this book is primarily a manifesto for being in the world we want to make. Um, and it brings on and brings forward an incredible range of thinking and action um, from across cultures, time and communities um, to enable us to go forward in that journey. So enormous thanks uh, to both of you um, for being with us today and for writing the book, of course. Um, Huge thanks, of course, to the RSA for delivering this event, particularly today to Abby, Becky, Justin and Keeley. Thank you very much uh, indeed for being with us. Please do check out the links, of course, in the YouTube chat and across the RSA's social media channels um, for further reading on what's been discussed today. Thank you very much indeed for watching and taking part. It's an RSA lunchtime event in London, of course, but you might be watching this at breakfast, at dinner, deep into the early hours, wherever and whenever you've been joining us. Um, many, many thanks for taking the time to do so. But finally, equally wherever and whenever you're watching this, please do raise a glass and put your hands together um, with huge thanks to our brilliant guests today, Sarah Ichioka and Michael Corlin. Thank you very much indeed and goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.